we, uh, we have a new um, endeavor uh, starting at Lebanon Christian Church. You might even call it a new ministry uh, that's beginning. It's called a care team. And uh, we thought we'd spend a few moments here before we jump into the word this morning, continue our teaching series, just to hear a little bit about the care team, uh, what it is, uh, who it is, uh, and how to take advantage of that. So I've asked uh, Doug Latica, who's one of the people leading the care team, to come up and just to share a few thoughts uh, about the care team with us. Thank you, Craig. You So, Doug, will you just begin? Um, we hear the word care team. It's new to most of the people here. Um, just explain briefly what the, what the care team is and kind of the, the why behind it. Sure. And uh, thank you, Craig, for the opportunity to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And good morning to my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Uh, the care team. for people who are hurting and who have been called by God um, to come alongside them and try and care for them. Um, there are a lot of issues that we all have. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar, substance abuse, physical problems, um, other kinds of abuse. The list just goes on and on. Marital issues, divorce. So in our hurting, and it usually doesn't go very well when you go it alone, um, the heart of God is to want to help us and to heal the hurts uh, that we have. And he uses us to do that. Uh, God wants to reconcile all people to himself. Uh, he wants us to love one another deeply from our hearts. Uh, he wants us to comfort people with the comfort by which he has comforted us. So we want to be the hands and feet of God in coming alongside you who are hurting um, so uh, that you don't have further difficulty. One of, the, one of the things that concerns me the most is that when we go it alone, uh, oftentimes in our confusion and in our hurting, um, we turn our back on God. And when we turn our back on God, for any of you who have done that, um, it doesn't go so well. And we make really bad decisions which have uh, lifelong consequences and make our situation much worse than it began. So the care team has been developed for you to access to, so that we can come alongside and either keep you connected to our Heavenly Father or reconnect you with him and support and love you through the difficult times that you're going through. Yeah, that's awesome. I, one of the things I'm excited about, about the care team, and, and those of you that are part of Lebanon Christian Church and have been a part a long time probably understand this. Um, we ran a report here in the last few months to see how many unique people had worshiped with us uh, on a Sunday morning, and it's north of 900 different people are coming to Lebanon Christian Church, even though we don't all come together every single week. Um, that's a lot of people with a lot of needs and a lot of burdens and, and a lot of hurts, and a pastoral staff, a team of elders alone can't minister. And it's, it's never meant to be that way. It's meant to be the body coming alongside. And so this care team 
is there to do that and to help alongside the pastoral staff and the elders and, and others in our church. Could you maybe share briefly, Doug, with us about what training has taken place for this care team? Sure, Craig. Um, I put together um, a training course uh, that consists of uh, the spiritual foundations of care, um, interviewing skills, how to be supportive and caring, what to say, what not to say, um, and also some diagnostic criteria for common mental health disorders, such as depression and anxiety and PTSD and bipolar and things of that nature. Um, also trained our crew to know when to refer to mental health professionals um, and gave them uh, what they need to know about confidentiality, which is huge, and also some basic uh, concepts for treatment very good. I'm going to jump out of order with our questions for a That's minute, fine. because I think as you talk about these things, it's important. What drew you to this and kind of maybe what is your past that helps you be someone that can help you believe in this endeavor? So when I became a Christian, um, God gave me a couple of his gifts uh, for compassion, um, caring, uh, and encouragement. So that grew throughout my adult life. I also just completed 45 years as a healthcare professional, uh, caring for, I don't know, more than 100,000 people over my lifetime. Um, caring for them, not only medically, but emotionally and psychologically as well. And also was a professor at Butler University, and I have a master's uh, in education and teaching and learning. Um, so I, I think God's been preparing me uh, with the gifts at Salvation, uh, my medical career, and my educational background to be able to equip and, and lead a care team. And probably most importantly, uh, I feel called by him to do so. Very good. And then uh, here as we conclude, before I pray over the care team, would you share, if someone wants to take advantage of the care team, uh, they're hurting right now, what are the best ways to submit that care request and to sure. get connected? Yeah, if you could just take a moment and think, how's it going over the next few days and even now, uh, or family members, and if you feel like you're alone and nobody knows what you're going through, um, or you'd like someone to come alongside of you and help, either of two ways, um, either call the church office and make an appointment for the care team, and that'll kick that off. Or you can go online and um, there's a section to click on uh, request care and submit that. Then we can contact you and get things going. Very good. Well, let's take a moment and we're just going to pray over the care team. A big part of the vision of Lebanon Christian Church is to be an outpost of hope. And I can't think of what better ways to shine hope than when people are hurting. I'm going to pray over that for you. Uh, God, we are thankful that um, you are jump-starting this new endeavor to try to just uh, better provide uh, care and compassion to people in times of crisis and deep need, uh, whether that comes because of um, a mental health challenge they're facing or a physical uh, challenge they're facing. Maybe it's grief. Uh, maybe they've experienced a tragedy. Maybe they're just struggling with the hardships of life. Uh, God, would you enable this care team and continue to equip them underneath the leadership of Doug and Kurt to 
to minister to those needs. And God, may we as a church grow in our heart uh, for those who are suffering. And may we help extend your care that people might be drawn into your life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Doug. As we transition to our, our, our main message time, um, we've been looking at the heart of God over the last several weeks. Uh, in fact, in all of January and February, we're looking to the heart of God, exploring his heart. Uh, how does God view us as human beings? What can we know about his heart? Over the last three weeks, we looked at his heart for humanity. Like, like what does the word of God say? What does it teach about God and how he feels about us as human beings in a number of ways? And we're transitioning this week to looking at how God has a heart that can be trusted. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how we can trust God. Trust is a big deal. Um, we often know that trust is a big deal where we experience a lack of trust, don't we? This idea of trust, having confidence in someone, being able to depend upon them. Uh, when that doesn't exist, we realize just how important trust is. Many of us uh, have grown up in homes where someone, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent and a sibling, uh, reminded us the importance of trust. Um, don't, don't break trust, maybe you heard growing up. We look out at our world and we see a number of places where trust is broken down. Some of us have experienced that in the relationships closest to us. Some of us have experienced that in our places of employment, where we thought we could trust our employer or our boss or a coworker, and then that was broken. Uh, many of us have seen that when it comes to our governing authorities. We wonder, can we trust what's happening? Trust is an important commodity. And so what can we learn about trusting God and trusting his heart? How is God different than these others that let us down? And we certainly can't explore that fully in three weeks, but we're gonna look at three distinct ways that we can trust God uh, that come from lessons in the life of David. To get us thinking about the first one, though, I want you to think about tsunamis. Uh, tsunamis are one of the greatest, most devastating natural disasters we experience on earth. And they were in the news recently. Uh, you may recall last week, uh, there was a violent volcanic eruption just off the coast of Tonga that resulted in a tsunami. Uh, in fact, I think I have a picture here of um, the, the eruption from outer space. You can see that was the volcanic eruption last week, I think January 18th or 17th, just off the coast of Tonga. Uh, the next picture shows uh, the devastation that followed in Tonga from the tsunami. Uh, as of now, uh, five people have lost their lives and several more are missing I share about tsunamis because tsunamis are something that occurs at a given point. Uh, there's a catalytic event, uh, a volcanic eruption in this case, and the tsunami comes out from that and causes devastating effects miles away. The eruption occurred off the coast of Tonga, and yet the devastation occurs uh, in Tonga, and people are hurt and killed and destroyed. Homes are destroyed. Maybe you remember the earthquake from 2011 uh, in Japan that triggered a tsunami. And I actually have a picture of this is the tsunami coming into one of the coastal cities in Japan, just devastating whole villages and whole towns. Uh, and in fact, the devastation from the earthquake in Japan that triggered the tsunami not only triggered the devastation in Japan, resulting in 20,000 people losing their life, but did you know the tsunami reached 
the west coast of California in just 10 hours. About three foot high was the tsunami as it came into Santa Cruz, California and did incredible damage in the millions. In fact, it's estimated that $100 million worth of damages were done by that tsunami that happened 5,000 miles away. An event 5,000 miles away triggers catastrophic uh, other events uh, in California. That means the tsunami traveled at nearly 500 miles per hour to reach the coast of California. One event, one catalytic event, an earthquake, creates a tsunami that damages things thousands of miles away. I didn't grab pictures. I even had a hard time even knowing if I should show these because I know that devastation is all too real and there are real lives that were lost. But if you have the time, look at some of the images from the tsunami in 2004, uh, triggered by an earthquake off the coast of Indonesia, where people reported waves more than 100 feet tall uh, that wiped out whole, whole towns and whole cities. Uh, the death toll from the tsunami in 2004 was 230,000 people. One event with an epicenter off the coast of Indonesia causes catastrophic damages miles away. Now, why would I have you think about tsunamis uh, as we talk about trusting the heart of God? It's because there are things in life, actions, words, thoughts uh, that we engage in that don't just affect the moment in history that they occur, but they have devastating consequences days later, weeks later, months later, years later. And one of those types of actions or words or thoughts is what we call sin. Sin is anything we do that is against the standard that our God, our creator, has established for us. Sin goes by a variety of names in scripture. It goes by the name sin, but you also will see trespass, transgression, iniquity, unrighteousness, wrongdoing, uh, offense. They're all ways of describing the same thing. God has a standard. God as our creator has a best intent, a best way for us to live and when we live contrary to that, we sin. We break his command. We, we make an offense against him. And whenever we do that, there are devastating consequences, both in the life of the one who has sinned and those that are near them and those they relate to in their community and those they relate to around the world. God has a standard for our human experience how we talk to each other, how we treat one another, uh, how, how we handle our, our, our money, uh, what we do with the intents of our heart, uh, whether we're content or, or, or we worship something else, uh, how, we, how we engage in sexual intimacy. God has standards for all of that. And when we break his standard, we sin. So what is God's heart when it comes to sin? How do we trust God's heart when it comes to our sin? What do we do with these, these things we engage in that break his command, that have these devastating effects? We see in scripture quite plainly that, 
that sin goes against God's desire for us. We, we read Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It's clear. Uh, God is a God of life. He has a plan that leads to the fullness of life. And when we go against that, we participate in decay and death and bring death uh, to ourselves. So how do we trust God's heart when it comes to sin? We want to look into the life of David to see this a little bit. Uh, I shared with you a few weeks ago that we would be back to an event in David's life. Uh, we just kind of read it and talked about it briefly and looking at God's heart for imperfect people. Next to the story of David and Goliath, probably the most well-known account in David's life, and it might even be more well-known than the account of David and Goliath, is David's sin with Bathsheba. And we have that account in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, where David goes against the heart of God when it comes to his behavior. Here's how the events described, 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and that woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. And there's this note. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. So we see David, who we're told elsewhere is a man for God's own heart. We see David, who we know believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see David, who accepted God's law, his instructions, the Ten Commandments, and we see him clearly break and go against that standard. One of those commandments, you might recall, is do not commit adultery. And here is David committing adultery. But we also know as the story unfolds, that's not where it stops. As often is the case with sin, when we break one command, we break another and another and another. And so David wants to cover up that sin. Uh, commandment number nine, by the way, in the Ten Commandments is uh, don't bear false witness, don't lie, don't deceive. And what follows in this passage is David, you know, developing a plan to deceive, intentionally deceive Uriah, to bring Uriah back from war so that Uriah will sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy that Bathsheba has will now be credited to Uriah rather than David. And when that doesn't work, David breaks another standard of God. He arranges for Uriah to be killed. And in verses 15 through 17, we read how this comes about. He wrote a letter to Joab, the commander at the front lines, and it says this. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David's intent clearly is to have Uriah killed. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David has not just committed adultery. Not only has he deceived, uh, but now I think we can credit him with murder. So here is a man who has and knows God has a standard and he breaks that standard. And what are the consequences? 
We see damages. We see damages to his relationship with God. Here's some evidence of that. If you look at the end of verse 27 in chapter 11, the very fast line, the last line says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Nathan the prophet will come to David in chapter 12, and he will tell him that you have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. You have broken this command. You have gone against God's standard. David himself acknowledges the damage in his relationship. Psalm 51, if you're not aware of this, uh, you might want to put a note in the margins of 2 Samuel 11 for yourself to remember. But Psalm 51 is a prayer, a song that, that, that David is inspired to write by God's Spirit uh, in response to his sin. He acknowledges that his relationship with God is damaged. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. He acknowledges, I have sinned, God. I, I need your mercy. Like there's something you offer that I don't have right now, and I need you to act on my behalf because I have damaged this relationship through my sin. And we start to see that while the epicenter, while the volcanic eruption for David might have been the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the tsunami starts to extend. And it damages the relationship with God, but it also damages the relationship between David and others. Some of it's unquantifiable. Some of it we can't know for sure. What happened in the relationships with David and his advisors who went and got word and said, this is Bathsheba and brought that back to David and then went and got Bathsheba to come back to David's house? What happened among his counsel and his advisors when they see that their leader who's supposed to uphold God's instructions breaks them? We don't know. You may read in your footnotes in 2 Samuel 11, there's some uh, notes, if your Bible has those, for Iliam. What if Bathsheba's father Iliam is the same Iliam listed among David's mighty men later in 2 Samuel? What if not only Uriah was someone trusted, but Iliam was trusted, and now this is his daughter? You might see the note that, that, that Bathsheba's grandfather's name was Ahithophel, what if Ahithophel was the same Ahithophel that was David's trusted advisor? The same Ahithophel that would abandon David to align with another king later in David's life. We, we don't know any of that for sure, but it could be those damages start extending. What we do know for sure is that it damaged the relationship between Bathsheba and Uriah. It damaged David's relationship with Uriah. It ended his life. We know that Joab later questions the king's leadership. Perhaps that was related to this event. We see the mourning that it brought on Bathsheba. Even if she was consenting in this, there must still have been regret. Verse 27 tells us that there was a time of mourning, and then David brings her in to be his wife. But what you can see is that what happens is one sin, one intentional act to go away from what God's best is, results in this wave of destruction and devastation. Again, what does this tell us about God's heart when it comes to our sin? Well, in part, God's heart when it comes to our sin is that our sin is serious. When we break God's commands, it's a big deal. It's never anything to be casual about. But you don't need David's story to tell you that, do you? That's a part of all of our human experience. We know Paul's words in Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
you've experienced the same catastrophic consequences in your life. One choice. Maybe you thought no one would ever know about. One, one, one way that you decided to disobey God's standard and yet you have seen the repercussions of that for weeks and months and years. It's the story we see in all of scripture. Adam and Eve, made in God's image, live in the garden. God gives them one explicit instruction. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, surely you will die. And, and, and they eat. And we see that while God doesn't cut them off from relationship with himself completely, they're cut off from the garden of Eden. We, we even see the division start to come between them. They hide when they realize that they're naked. And Adam's first defense is, well, she made me do it. I'm sure that's good on the relationship. What happens in Cain and Abel's relationship with sin? It's destroyed. Cain kills his brother. What happens when mankind sins and God sends the flood? There's destruction. There's devastation. Even as Noah's preserved. What about Babel? Well, what about the story of God's people in the wilderness? We see that sin has devastating consequences. It damages things. And so part of understanding God's heart towards sin is accepting that sin is serious, that it's a big deal. You and I have to accept that sin is a big deal. We live in a world that grows casual with things that break the heart of God. Or we live in a church that wants to categorize only certain sins as being those that are devastating and we allow the other insidious sins to just exist and, and, and hang out in our lives like angerness and anger and bitterness and, and rage and malice and jealousy and greed and, and discontentment. Like all that stuff can hang out because it doesn't put us on the front page of the papers. So, so part of understanding God's heart towards sin is accepting that it is serious. But part of understanding God's heart towards sin is not just that sin is serious and that sin results in death and sin brings decay, but that God also has a heart for the sinner. One of the things that you will see in the history of God's work in humanity revealed in scripture is that most of the time when we see how awful sin is, very close to it, either before or after, is, is an expression of God's grace and his mercy. Because just as serious as sin is, even more serious is God about his grace and his mercy. When we trust God's heart with our sin, not only do we acknowledge that it is wrong and it goes against the standard and it's serious business, we also have to trust his heart for the sinner. And this is also revealed in David's life. I wanna hang out in those words in Psalm 51 for a moment. Because here is David who clearly believes that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. And when he sins, and when he breaks God's heart, and when he is broken, and when he sees the devastation, he knows that he can trust God, not only what he said about sin, but that God will help him with his sin. And so he runs back to him. I, I love the description that, that, that precedes the psalm. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, like David's response is, okay, God, I have sinned, but, but I have to come back to you because not only is sin bad in your eyes, but you've made a way through the sin. So he believes and we see his confession here. Look at verses two through five. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David just confesses his God, I am a sinner. I I have offended you. He believes and he confesses and he he has this heart of repentance that moves towards restoration. Look at verses seven through 15. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. You who are God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. God has a heart that can be trusted with our sin not just because of how he helps us understand sin and its devastating consequences, but because if we will confess and we will repent and we will turn to him and acknowledge that his ways are best, he will bring healing and he will bring cleansing and he will set our feet on a new way as we respond to him. As we acknowledge our sin and as we turn from it, he he makes us whole and David shows us that. God can be trusted with our sin not only because of what he says about it, but because of what he's done with it in giving us the opportunity to be redeemed and restored and set free and made new. If you look through the pages of Scripture that detail God's work in the early years of humanity, both old and new, you will always find people who struggle with this. They either want to see God as a judge who is uh, vindictive and and, and harsh towards sin, or they they want to see God as this gracious father. But so often we we need to be brought back to seeing him as both, because that's what we see in Scripture. Again, where so often sin is spoken about harshly, we also have waiting in the wings this message of his redemption and his mercy. Here's just some examples. Let's look at the prophets. The prophets are often known for their harsh words towards Israel, but look at Daniel chapter nine. In Daniel nine, there's this beautiful prayer David has. Uh, He is among people living in captivity, which that captivity is brought about because of the sin, but there's also a reminder of God's forgiveness. In Daniel 9, 9, we have this prayer, and just just, just listen to this one line from the prayer. I think it articulates it so, so beautifully. As he prays, in the the words leading up to this, he acknowledges the sin among God's people. But here's what happens in verse nine. He says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Daniel trusts God's heart when it comes to sin. God, we have wronged you. We have done things that aren't right. That's resulted in some of the devastation we're experiencing. But here's what we also know about you. You are merciful and you're forgiving. And this isn't isolated to Daniel. Uh, Think about the story of Hosea the prophet. In fact, the story of Hosea the prophet's being portrayed on the the big screen at movies right now. Uh, There's a woman who wrote a book called Redeeming Love that's been made into a movie. And it's a modern retelling of the story of Hosea and Gomer. 
In the story of Hosea and Gomer, God has his prophet Hosea marry a woman, Gomer, who sins against him. She commits adultery again and again and again, and yet God uses him as he continues to go back and welcome Gomer as an example of his love for Israel. Again, sin is devastating. It's serious. We have to accept that. God's standards matter. But when we repent and confess and return to him, there is restoration. If, if that's not enough, think about the prophet Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to the city of Nineveh. Why? Because he, he characterized them as these sinful, ungodly people. He, he, he didn't want to go there. And so when he goes and he proclaims God's message and the people begin to repent, here's Jonah's prayer. God, see, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. So yes, sin is serious, but even more serious is God's grace and compassion. And as we acknowledge the seriousness of sin, that, that, that breaking any of his commands matters, we respond to him and repent and, and, and he restores. You see, the very things that we see in David's life, God offers to us. What we see in Psalm 51, he offers to us. David believes, as we believe and we acknowledge what God says about sin is real, that's the beginning. We believe that God has a best way. God has a best standard for all aspects of the human experience. And when we stray from that, when we experience sin and its brokenness and the devastation, we have to confess that. We have to acknowledge, God, I, I am broken. God, I, I have messed up your plan for, insert, marriage, Sex, words, your plan for how to treat people. We have to confess that, but God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness is what John says. And as we repent and we wanna learn to live his way, God, I, I, have, I have messed up your standard for sexual intimacy. God, show me how to do it the right way. God, I have messed up your standard on how to speak to other people. Help me do the right. God, I have messed up how you want me to live and treat people within your church. Help me to do it the right way. As we repent, he restores and he renews. And that's the story of the disciples' life. From the moment they surrender to King Jesus, it's the story of continuing to believe and to confess and to repent, and his spirit empowers us to live in his new way. And by the way, all that's modeled in our initial time of coming to surrender to him. When we talk about making a decision of faith, we talk about believing. We have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. We have to confess that he is the savior of the world. We have to confess that we are sinners in need of a savior and we repent of that sin and that faith that drives our belief and our confession and our repentance. It drives us into baptism. We're gonna have a baptism after second service is over today where someone has come to the place where they realize I need God and I need his way. And we identify with him in baptism and our sins are washed away and we rise picture of the resurrection of Jesus where we're in his life, we're wrapped up in him and his spirit fills us and helps us live this life that sees his standard and confesses when we're wrong and repents from that. That's God's design for us. When we talk about God's heart, trusting his heart, we can trust his heart when it comes to sin. He has a standard and when we break that standard, it's a big deal. But he also is a God of compassion and grace. And so as we break those standards, we can come to him repentant and he renews and he restores. And if we trust and follow Jesus, that should be the story of our life. That anytime we realize that we're out of sync with what God wants, we repent and we confess and we come back to him. 
And he continues to shape us more and more into the likeness of his son. So here's the challenge when it comes to trusting God's heart with your sin. One, if you are here in the room or if you are watching online and you have not yet surrendered to God's authority, that's where we begin. Believe in him, believe in his standard, believe in his way, believe in his truth, believe in his life. And allow that belief and allow that faith to drive you to confess him as Lord, to repent of our sin, to follow him in baptism, and to be filled with the spirit to walk in newness. And we'd be happy to walk you through that decision here in person, or you can reach out to us online, connect at lebanonchristian.org. You can come forward at the end of one of our worship experiences. We can have that conversation with you. You can reach out to a friend. We can help you experience life lived for him and for his purposes. But here's the second challenge is that we need to, to be a church if we're disciples of Jesus who takes sin seriously, to acknowledge sin in, in all of its ways. Insidious, big, small. We need to look into our lives, not to the lives of other people and call it their sin, but look into your own life. Where are you breaking the standards of God? And let's be men and women, young and old, who believe, repent, and confess. And let's be people who model his heart for the world. What's the heart of the church towards sin? Are we churches that only want to talk about everything that God doesn't like? Or are we churches that make space for people who are sinners, who need to encounter the grace of God? I've been challenged this week by some words. Our staff is walking through a curriculum and um, in there, the, the, the speaker just leans into the words of Romans chapter two that reminds us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Far too often in the church, it's, we want it to be the anger of God that leads us to repentance. But no, it's the kindness of God. What led Israel to repent as they were brought back to the land um, that was promised to them? It's God's grace extended to them. Yes, they have to recognize sin, but it's his kindness and his provision that leads them to repentance. What is it that we see in Jesus? Yes, Jesus calls out sin. He, he, he speaks to the woman caught in adultery and tells her to go and to sin no more. But it's his kindness also that was extended to her that led to that repentance. Will we be a church that, that acknowledges what sin is, but also extends a kindness that leads others to repentance? God's heart can be trusted when it comes to our sin. It is serious, but his grace is even more serious. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your heart. God, your heart that I know is grieved when we break your commands. God, there's evidence of that grief all throughout your story of humanity, the story recorded in scripture. And yet, God, even as your heart breaks for sin, we pray that our hearts would break towards sin. But God, we're also so thankful for your heart for the sinner that if we would choose to believe and to confess and to repent, that you would make us new and make us whole. God, for those in the room who are seemingly trapped in 
the devastating consequences of their past sinful actions, would, would you help them to, to see the hope that's found in you as they confess that and turn from that and turn to you? God, will we be people who are overwhelmed by your kindness, God, and that kindness is not taken advantage of, but God, it's a kindness that drives us to repent and to turn to pursue you, the one who made us, informed us, and fashioned us and knows what's best for us, best for all of us, all of human activity, best for every relationship. God, we look to you and we trust you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.